You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest. Her name is Katie Silcox. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Healthy, Happy, Sexy, Ayurvedic Wisdom for Modern Women. She's also the founder of the Shakti School, an online certification school for women-centered holistic wellness. Today, we're going to talk about conscious relationships and the feminine form. And I think this is going to be really exciting. Katie, welcome. So great to have you. Thank you. Um, Really happy to be here. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, relationships are such like a big deal. Um, You know, for the most part, they don't go so well. And uh, you're talking about conscious relationships. And I wonder... Let's talk about what a conscious relationship is and why that's better than the regular old-fashioned kind. I completely agree with you that relationships, it's, it's, it's one of the realms where we have our most tender humanity, right? Our deepest karmas, if we were to use the yogic language. And I'm sure you know these wonderful stories of the old yogis where you would go and meditate alone for many, many years. And then when you had finally reached a certain level of yogic practice, your teacher would go and tell you to get married, right? And so relationships are are a really evocative realm. I, I think of them almost like nuclear, adding sort of a nuclear energy to our experience. And when I think of conscious relating, what I really think about is being able to consciously relate to ourselves. And so the the sort of primary ground upon which we're able to have a loving, conscious relationship with another person, whether it be a partner, you know, a sexual partner, a, a wife, a husband, or even our children, our friends, our family, it really does start with being able to tolerate ourselves. And that's really the, the starting point for relating. Yeah, I love the Ayurvedic definition. You know, Ayur is life, Veda is truth. So I like the idea of Ayurveda really being the truth of your life mm-hmm. and you know, letting you know, the truth of your life out, the truth of who you truly are out really would make sense to be the very first step to make that happen. So, so okay, we're not in a relationship yet. We want to get into a relationship, but we got to kind of get conscious within ourselves. How do we do that? What are the first steps? Well, I mean, I'm in a moment right now where for me, being with Swasta, right? The sense of being situated or, or stabilized in the truth, to use that word you just used, of whatever is arising in the field of experience for me in this moment, and being able to be in relationship with out what one of my favorite authors calls a sense of fundamental aggression towards ourselves. So for someone like yourself or or me or any of the listeners, I'm sure we're kind of invested as Ayurvedic practitioners or Ayurvedic um, people who are interested in Ayurveda with a sense of a life self-improvement project. Whereas this, this way of relating to who we are really makes a lot of room for every aspect of our being that may come through, be it things that we may feel are are really beautiful and health bringing and things that feel like challenges. And so the first step is really being able to hold space to create a container for that which is arising in, in the field of the experience, be it emotions, be it images, be it old memories and 
for a lot of us, it's really body sensations. And to be able to start to relate to those and hold a space for that, then we're able to be adult, right? We're able to take responsibility for what's arising. And when we're relating with other people, we don't bring that fundamental aggression into our outer relationships as much, right? Like that's the ideal. Yeah, no, I love that. There's an old saying in Ayurveda says that to the extent that something or someone affects you is to the extent that it's your karma, which really means action. So to the extent that someone affects you in a negative way or whatever, it's an opportunity for us to take transformational action and free ourselves from those old unwanted patterns of behavior. And we have two ways to do it. I always call it door number one, which is doing it the same old dumb way. We've done it forever. And then door number two is doing you, which is, you know, the truth of you, the Ayurveda of you, letting something really more authentic out. Yeah. Now there's a trick in doing that, you know, like, and I wonder, like, so we're so conditioned, we have these pre-recorded stress responses to kind of react to a situation or a relationship or whatever it is. And then we have this inner, more protected version of us that really wants to come out, but the, the louder voice is the one that is reactive you know, and objectively referring to our environment versus subjectively referring to our environment. So are there any tips where people could sort of like, you know, get, um, you know, clear and maybe pause and have that ability to uh, act from, you know, from something more real as opposed to that reaction mode? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's, it's something I call that sacred or holy moment, right? Where you go against perhaps lifetimes of conditioning that would want us to start to build up the walls on our heart you know and that reactivity can show up as aggression it can show up as anger it can also show up as people pleasing and avoiding or numbing out there's there's a million different ways these sort of old reactivity patterns show up but if we can actually pause what we will find in that meditative pause is a lot of typically discomfort I mean, one of my mentors says it's like eating a you know what sandwich, you know, when we actually pause and we can hold ourselves in that which we were so quick to react from what we'll find is that underneath that layer of reactivity is a fundamental vulnerability. And, and that actually, ironically, that fundamental vulnerability that you kind of spoke to a moment ago, according to the research now of, you know, our modern teachers like Brene Brown, vulnerability is the cord upon which we actually feel connected to people. And so for myself, you know, I can feel inside myself, oh, there's all this desire to kind of present this certain persona. But when I actually show up and I'm just the regular me and I'm just showing up and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in this interview. I don't know what's going to happen if I go on a date later on. Right. But if I can just show up, it feels a little more tender, but I'm actually able to connect on a deeper level. And people really can intuitively feel this. Yeah, no, I, I love that. There's another old saying that that you that what you just said reminded me of, which is that the the pain and the fear are directly across from the bliss, and the reason for the pain and the fear is to get our attention, so we can go to the pain and to the fear and through the pain and through the fear and act something access something real who you truly are, and then like rays of the sun you know, shine through the density of the matter and let who you truly are out. So what happens in our culture today is there's, like you said, there's a lot of numbing going on. You know, we just, you know, like 
I mean, you know, smoking weed for just an example is something that is legalized for getting rid of pain, right? So from the Vedic perspective, the pain is the is the roadmap to get Teacher. free. Yeah. Right. But we want to numb it and we don't feel it. So there's no so we're we're keeping and there's drugs and antidepressants and all kinds of you know things, shopping is a whole bunch of things we can do to numb ourselves and to basically burn up our roadmap to let ourselves, you know, in. So I'm curious if you could elaborate on on you know um if that if that resonates with you and and uh, you know ways that we could possibly maybe examples even if we can possibly get through and move through our fear because it seems to be something that uh, we want to avoid. You know, from a kind of what you're saying pops me into the realm of tantra, which considers these experiences as goddesses right the rage the anger the fear and also the the beauty the pleasure the bliss they are goddesses and when some of these goddesses show up that i don't like like i really it's not fun to be criticized it's not fun to feel scared or lonely or a lot of these feelings that we're all humans we're going to feel and when they show up this fundamental vulnerability appears and i notice inside myself like i want that goddess to go away and from a tantric perspective you're really being disrespectful to the very goddess that can bring you, as you pointed out, into this deeper layer of who she is underneath that first mask of, of apparent disconnection. And what I wanna add to that is, I think a lot of us are super uncomfortable with ourselves, with our feelings, right? But what I'm noticing the more I practice this is that we're also uncomfortable with the bliss and the pleasure. And so some of this is learning how to tolerate more and more sensations, not only of our, our vulnerabilities, our core wounds, we could call them from a psychological perspective, but also our innate pleasure power, which is a completely radical idea. And, and I wanna say, when I say pleasure power, I don't mean just overt sexuality, I mean subtle pleasure. And I'm sure you can speak to the gateways of the five senses and the way Ayurveda has really taught us how to refine the sensory apparatus so that we can really, I like to use the word, build the muscle of tolerating bliss. It's a, it's a superpower. No, I would love for you to elaborate on the ways. I think that's really um, brilliant. I think a lot of people, you know, because of self-worth issues, they just don't feel worthy. Yeah. They don't give themselves permission to, you know, enjoy life, let alone access the subtle, let alone access the subtle access of bliss. Mm. So if you, yeah, if you can, um, you know, give us some tips on how to sure. do that, some yeah. steps, ABC, so, that'd be awesome. There's like pleasure power 101, which is, you know, I, I'm in this beautiful Zen garden in my backyard, but you can go do it anywhere. And nature really is the master co-regulator for our nervous system. And so we can bounce our attention off the natural world. And what I find is that, first of all, I feel bored, right? Because our sensory apparatus is so overstimulated through technology, through our current culture, it can take a little while to get the sensory apparatus to start to reposition itself to be able to perceive more subtle layers of pleasure. So one of the first things we can do is use those gateways of the five senses to actually do a tantric form of meditation, which is we orient not to the inner world, although that's a certainly wonderful practice, but we orient to the outer world. This also helps us take ourselves less seriously. It gets us out of the stuck sense of identification with ourselves and our perceived problems. 
And so that's just a basic way of starting is move through your eyes, look, look around at the color and the texture. And, you know, with my skin, you know, sometimes I'll just rub my skin and it seems silly, but rubbing your own skin, it, it's a way of self-soothing, but it also brings us into contact with the reality of the physicality. Um, in, in tantric medicine, we call this dhruvya shakti, which means the power of embodiment. And I think in our world, because so much of us have our, our prana moving up and out of us through our faces into screens, to actually just do some practices where we're grounding into nature, we can then start to move to the interior world. And in the interior world, we have this whole host of different pleasure sensations, but they're oftentimes covered up as we say in kundalini yoga they're covered up with these old reactivity patterns so the quick and dirty on how do i how do i start to awaken the more subtle internal bliss and those internal pleasure signals and pranic impulses is actually we allow ourselves to fully experience the things that are sitting on the surface that don't feel good and if we can continue to be with those and this is a challenge right getting out of the story or the intellectual interpretation around those experiences and sensations and feelings. If we get out of that interpretation, what we find is raw experience, pulsation, tension, openness, numbness, darkness, light, all of these different gunas, right? The qualities. And if you continue to open, I say, open your heart to yourself and open your heart to these experiences that honestly don't feel so great initially, you start to see that underneath this bliss layer can start to emerge. Now, you can't practice waiting on the bliss. You have to practice with an open heart. Like I'm willing to stay with whatever arises. I mean, that's the game. It's not always blissful. But over time, what I have found as we begin to open our awareness into less interpretation and more the rawness of experience, we gain the sense of confidence that is, I can stay with whatever it is that arises. Now, how this is vitally pertinent to human relationship. Now imagine you're with your partner and they're annoying you, right? You've learned how to stay with you. Now you can stay with them, right? Or you can say to them, hey, you're going through something like let's let's be in this together. But it's, inevitably, it's up to us to digest our own experience. I, I could go on and on, but I think this is a good place to pause. No, I, I yeah, I'm loving I'm loving this. You know, there's I was uh talk about using your senses, you know, externally as a tool to go internal, I think is really cool and brilliant. And uh, I remember I was watching a, a guru at the, at, the, um, at the source of the Ganges River. He was giving a lecture, but while he was giving a lecture, he was giving himself an abhyanga, giving himself an Ayurvedic daily massage, wow. right? Wow. And while he's giving himself a daily massage, he was doing it with such love and attention and intention and mindfulness. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Abhyanga, but I like to, you know, just get it on, you know, and I got to get, yeah. you know, I got things to do, places to go. So yeah. we just kind of get it on and we think that it's mechanical and it is mechanical. It feeds your bugs, it does all these things. It's covered, calms your nervous system, your central nervous system. But I was, as I was watching him, I was like, that's what this is all about. Yeah. It's about, that level of intention that actually changes everything and turns out that it does it, it you know we always think of oxytocin the longevity bonding hormone for loving and caring others but 
you get the same hormone when you love and care for yourself and use your senses as avenues of consciousness to do that. So I, I love that idea of using your senses. You're in the forest, right? There's no bigger, better oxytocin booster than being in the wilderness. And then just looking and using your senses, smelling, touching, you know, I think that is a great way for people to get started, you know, just be aware of their outer environment and then let that subtle experience be felt on the inside, you know, which I think is really, really great. And then you become what I like to call weatherproof, which you talked about, you know, you're not affected by the high and the low. You're not dependent on the highs only. You're not only happy when good things happen. You're, mm. you're, you're weatherproof. You're independent of the field. And I'll tell you a real quick story. One of my favorite stories was, a I don't know, a big golfer or anything, but there's this golfing guy, old time guy. And he was reached, pulling back the, a putter to putt. His name was Ben Hogan. And he was going to putt the putt to win the tournament. And it was a really long putt. And as he pulled his putter back, um, a train came by and blew the whistle. And everybody in the audience was like, oh, oh my God, this is crazy. And he swings, hits the putt, sinks the putt, wins the tournament. People are screaming and yelling, all this. And afterwards, they interviewed him. They said, Mr. Hogan, oh my God, that was so amazing. You won the tournament. What did you think when that train came by and blew the whistle? And he was like, what train? You know, and, and, and that's what you're talking about. You're talking about being independent of the field. You're talking about being, being unaffected by what's happening outside of you because you're so completely immersed with, with doing you. You're not affected by the incoming or you're not dependent on the, the approval and appreciation and love of others. And if they don't give it to you, you're like pissed off. You're irritated. You're like, yeah. why don't you love me? I'm not getting what I need. Well, well, and the, get, great, how, and the great, the, well, the great beauty of your story. And I love that it was a dude playing golf, right? The great beauty is it touches on, I think the essential nature of reality, which is always contradictory. And so he was able to channel that focus into being independent of the field. But I think if you continue going and being in that realm, what you find is that you're actually completely interdependent with the field as well. It's like, it's like the yogi going quietly meditating alone and then realizing that he's one with everything and can kind of come back into reality. And so there's this beautiful juxtaposition when we do these practices of independence we find this deep interdependence where, you know, I'm, I'm like a hardcore, let's do it all alone, Pitta yogi type, right? For 20 years, I was a tantric yogi practitioner doing hundreds of malas every day in the morning. And then I realized as my practice continues to develop, the real superpower is to actually be able to interface with reality and let it kind of come in, almost hitting me like a wave and yet there is something independent of that that is it's like a container for everything that arises in the field of experience be it the train whistle or not it's all welcome yeah i think what you're talking about you know is you know this actually gets quite quite deep really um is the gap you know the gap between you know the outer world and the inner world and when you live in the gap you're at that junction point, as you talked about. Before you react to a situation, you have the experience, then you have your reaction, and then you have the space, the gap between the experience and the reaction. You know, in Ayurveda, as you know, the Pragyaparad, the mistake of the intellect, is the cause of disease. And that takes place where the field of consciousness becomes us 
And then we forget that we come from that field of consciousness and the treatments for all disease take place at the junction point between consciousness and matter. And that's where all the Vedic therapies truly apply their focus is at that junction point. Because if you put yourself at the middle between field and physiology, and you have a light there and you shine the light in the middle, the light shines into the field and into the physiology. So you actually wake them up, you restore the memory of pure consciousness. And that's how Vedic healing is really done. Mm. It's not done on the outside or on the only on the inside. It's done in the middle at mm. the gap, right? If you want to kind of look, if you want to see in two rooms at the same time, go to the doorway and stay there and live mm. there. So, so many like, like, you know, in Ayurveda, like the the, the, the Ritu Sandhi, the gap between the seasons, the seven days before the season changes is when they say disease actually starts in your body is the gap between them. So I love that idea that you're talking about the gap between the outer world and your inner world is your skin, right? You know, and the, the, the gap is your, is your, is, can be experienced by using your senses and then, and then realize that they both exist at the same time and that's the ultimate goal. I love that analogy. It's a really cool thing. And I think people can sort of, you know, in a way, even contrive this a little bit. You can definitely go into the wilderness and experience the, the beauty of your senses. Then you can take that inside and then you can experience both, right? I think people could play with that all summer long and while they're, while they're uh, enjoying the, the outdoors. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm just throwing some, some, just sparking so many thoughts of mine. I, I, um, I just thought that was uh, really, really interesting. So let's go. Okay, now we're in a relationship, right? Um, and, you know, it was really good when we were recording, but now all of a sudden, you know, they're doing something that's sort of bugging me and it's not, you know, working and I'm not feeling comfortable yeah. loving them when we were just dating and we didn't live together. Now we live together and I didn't know you didn't close covers. I didn't know you didn't whatever, you know? What do yeah. we do? You found out that you had married or had been dating a human being. Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> all right, sorry. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of depth psychology, which I think is sort of the 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 Western form of of yogic psychology. And um, you call it depth? Is that yeah. like Johnny Depth psychology? Not Johnny oh, no. Depth. Yeah, he has a whole field of of psychology. No, it's <laughs> it's it's kidding. Carl Carl Jung, of course. Yeah, yeah I was just kidding. It was I couldn't resist. Sorry. <laughs> But but one of the things that that is so beautiful about depth psychology is this idea that when you first meet your beloved, you're complete, and, and the yogis understand this as well. You're completely projecting, and their in their understanding is very similar to the tantric understanding of our sexuality. That all of us are bisexual. We all have a masculine and a feminine, and for many men, they're going to express more of their masculine, especially in a culture that teaches them to do that. And, you know, there's the physiology of you being a man, right? And of course, it's a broad gender spectrum, but I think it's helpful for understanding what happens when we come into a relationship, be it a heterosexual or homosexual relationship, we're initially projecting all of that unconscious for you, it might be the feminine, right? And for me, it might be the masculine onto someone else. And so initially you're like, oh my God, they hung the moon right? They're everything that I've ever wanted. And I remember being very in love when I was in my 20s and literally thinking that my new boyfriend is enlightened, you know, and just having these sort of completely mad ideas about reality. And then what happens is that you have four people that are actually in a relationship. You have the real person you're with, 
th those two people and then the two projections and it can even get more complicated than that but to understand when we fall in love the chemistry and physiology they've actually done studies on this in italy are almost the same physiology as someone with schizophrenia right it you we literally could not stay in that heightened state we would kind of be in a heightened state right or even even perish they've done super interesting uh, studies on rats and mice in love and they give them kind of a chemical cocktail that keeps them in that sort of dopamine splurge and they end up just keeling over and dying right and so we can't stay in love and understanding that i think is really really helpful um, but what we can do is know, oh my goodness, I'm in a projection. And so what I have, uh, what I do and what I have my students at Shakti School do is, is I'm like, write out a list of all the qualities that you fell in love with, with your beloved when you met them. I don't care if it was seven months ago, seven years ago, or 70 years ago. And what you have right there, Dr. Dooliard, is a perfect map of your own inner masculine that not only you have, but that longs to come forth in your life. Whether you're a man or a woman, you can do this. Um, and then once you've been in that relationship for a while, just understanding that we're in that projection can be helpful. When you make that list, what we're going to attempt to do is now bring forth those qualities inside of ourself, rather than only waiting on that person to be those qualities that we were thinking that they were in the beginning, but now they're not seeming to be that. And I think that's, I mean, there's so many ways we can do that, but that's a really great way to start. The other second important thing goes back to the very thing we started with. And this is, a, this is like a deep tantric high level practice okay so all of you i'm currently single and it's way easier guys way easier so the high level tantric practice is to actually be in relationship the reason is that that person is going to of course if they're an abusive person you want to get out of it but in most cases that person is going to be a beautiful perfect mirror to you of not only all these beautiful qualities that you long for and you long to experience inside yourself, but also all of those unattended to experiences, sensations, we would call those karmas inside of you that need to be repaired. They're going to be that exact perfect little thorn in your side to bring you into a state of, oh, I'm having a reaction and therefore I need to go spend some time with this. Um, one more thing I'll add to that. One of my favorite teachers is a, a man named Michael Brown who wrote a, an amazing book called The Presence Process. I bring him up because he's so obscure. He, I never see him teach or anything. It's just this sort of magic book like a yogi he dropped into the universe. And he said, your beloved and the relationship that you're in will show you all of your charges inside your body, those little glow sticks that light up when someone annoys us or lets us down. And he says, when you are charged, the adult you is not in charge. And so it takes us into that heart of the vulnerable us that we can really begin to attend to. And that takes us back into the practice of bliss. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's exactly what I was alluding to when I was talked about the door number one and door number two, door number two is the road less traveled. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's, you know, we're, we're always going to have a situation where, you know, you're in a relationship and for whatever reason you're feeling like they're throwing darts at you or, um, and those darts hurt. And then we of course react to the dart 
you know, and uh, <clears throat> and what happens is when you react to the dart is we actually end up we're doing them right we're doing reacting to what they're projecting onto the screen, and uh, from the Ayurvedic perspective, if you could just do you, you would realize that through the window of compassion and understanding mm. um, that there's a reason why they threw the dart. Like roses, for example, if you go way way back, uh, and roses were they had thorns. Uh, well, they, well, they say when they way, way even before thorns, they didn't have thorns and, and uh, they were edible, of course. So they were getting trampled like eight and, and constantly just being gobbled up. And one day they were just so frustrated. The pricker bushes don't get trampled. The other ones don't get trampled. They were getting trampled. Mm. So they took a vote and they said, one guy said, what if we just do some thorns? They would stop trampling us. And mm. uh, so they took a vote and now they have thorns and they don't get trampled. And the same thing when someone's been trampled a lot in their life, they're gonna, they're gonna grow thorns. So we have to look at that and look at that as an opportunity to realize that that's gonna charge us. When someone says a dart at you and it hurts, you can either you know, throw a dart back, which is gonna make them feel more hurt or you can run away or avoid them or leave them or abandon them. And that'll also make them feel abandoned, which will make them hurt even more. So expect more darts, but that's just all doing them. And if you could just do you, in that relationship um, through the window of compassion and understanding, you begin to act through door number two, which mm -hmm. is you know letting something more compassionate, something more real out. And I think that's really how we disarm um, the folks who have so much armor that um, <clears throat> they don't know any other way of being other than throwing darts mm -hmm. and being aggressive. And, uh, you know, I love that's the kind of the Vedic way of really getting, you know, through the emotion, through the drama, through the armor, and mm. making that person feel safe and secure. So they feel safe to then open the delicate petals of their flower and let something real out. And now you have a relationship based on truth, you know, based on love, this truth being something that doesn't really change. That part you can, you can feel safe in because it doesn't change, you mm. know, so much. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I love that, you know, and I think that um, <clears throat> relationships are, are obviously, you know, in, in, the, in the Ayurveda, the householder is the, is the highest, you know, kind of relationship that one can establish because it is a challenge and you really have to grow. And then raising children is another level of like, oh my gosh, you know, um, and they're all, they're all relationships. So <clears throat> are there any other tips you can give us about, you know, and you mentioned we're going to talk about that and the feminine form. And what, tell me, like, talk to me about that. Like, mm -hmm. well, I mean, I want to go back for one second and just say the rose example is so beautiful and the darts. And what I'm becoming more aware of in myself is that we are always perceiving through the gateways of our chakras right our limbs we're always perceiving and so not only can we make room for safety and truth for the other to not maybe feel like they need to throw darts but what i'm realizing too is sometimes what feels like a dart to me was a flower like it wasn't even a dart and yet i'm experiencing it as a dart and so I think it's it's such a it's a beautiful two way street and that's where we kind of access that what we call buddhi right this highest aspect of our intellect that's able to discern what's an actual dart and what is inside of me that may be perceiving this incorrectly. The feminine mm -hmm. so, so how that's related to the feminine 
what I call the feminine form and, and why I started our school is that I wanted a place where some of these more, hmm, so you're, you're, I'm a huge fan girl of you. I have all of your books and I, I've, oh, I've, wow. I, was, I was always the like geeky girl at the ashram, like jumping rope with my mouth closed because of your breath. Practices. <laughs> so I just, I, I feel, um, just, just, I want you to know how, how deeply your, your work has impacted my own journey in Ayurveda. And, and one of the things that I love about Ayurveda is like it really offers up these practical ways, these these time tested methodologies. And I think that's that's like one of the greatest gifts of one of the only indigenous traditions that's really survived in such an uh, intact way. And yet there was a part of me that was like, well, where does the intuitive um, where does the emotional fit into this scenario? And then also, where does this part of me that was a little bit rebellious, that was a little bit of a rule breaker, I, I've always wanted to penetrate to the heart of the rules. And when we penetrate to the heart of the rules, we, we find wisdom, right? And yeah. if we can find that wisdom point, and this is where my tantric side comes out, it's like, forget the rules, right? Like now we have the true essence and, and it's inside of us and it's emergent as a phenomenon. And so the feminine is this part of all of us that can honor both, right? These sort of ancient creeds and rules and systems that we can mm. bow to even, but at the same time being totally willing to break the rules as in fact, the Charaka Samhita tells us to do. The, the ancient books say this must be adapted for the time and the place and the people. And I would even take it a step further and say to the individual experience. So the feminine form in all of us is this part that can actually see the field in which all of our little weeds are growing. And I think sometimes I know I'm super connected to my masculine, what I would call the masculine. Like I wanna, I wanna go for the problem, I wanna be ambitious, I wanna, you know, figure things out, and then I wanna create a system and I wanna follow it, you know, and then there's this part of me, and we could switch the words. We could call it Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Like it, it's not about men and women, it's about this yin and yang, this duality where there's this part of me that's behind me, deeply informing me and telling me that I'm completely loved and that I'm not a problem to be fixed. And I think that's so critical, not only in the Ayurveda world, but in the world of the healing arts in the world of spirituality, psychology, really everything that there is this love field that is holding us. And that's what I'm interested in being in a deeper and deeper relationship with um, not only the beautiful techniques and, and technologies, and I've, I've done my best to explain something that is quite vast, and I hope I've done an okay job at it. No, I think you're doing an amazing job. I think it's just a great, uh, a great conversation. It, it um, <clears throat> reminds me of the, in the Bhagavad Gita, one of my favorite lines in that book is Yogastha Kuru Kamani, which means first establish being, and then perform action. And uh, <clears throat> I think in our world, definitely in the, oftentimes in the, in the world of ashrams and spirituality and on, there's a lot of established being going on. You know, there's a lot of yoga, breathing, meditation, you know, rounding, deep, 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 go into 
but there's not a lot of action taking place. In other words, we're not allowed, not taking that calm, that love, that bliss, that truth, and putting it into the world and taking it world, putting it into your relationship. And mm -hmm. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. The other half of the equation is how do I take action? And I think that's what I think you're sort of talking about is like taking action to let that delicate, vulnerable, gentle side of you, whether it be masculine or feminine, whatever it is, letting that vulnerability out is mm -hmm. the action that we must take because that's the truth of us. The reason why it's covered up with a mind that can create all kinds of illusions to protect us is because it is vulnerable and delicate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But the goal of this human form is to be an instrument to mm -hmm. express that subtle energy, that subtle bliss and let it radiate through us. And that's mm -hmm. what you know all the koshas are about. That's what Ayurveda is about. Ayurveda is for us to become conscious, which is why I love the idea of you were talking about conscious relationships. It's about becoming conscious. You know, one study is you probably, I've cited a lot of these studies, but one said like 95% of the things we think and say and do as adults come from impressions from the first six years of life, right? So most of us are walking around unconscious. Like, yeah. we're, like it's, we're, 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 I'm functioning from my six-year-old, who was that? Can you <laughs> remember that person, you know? But that's who we're functioning right. from and we're so unconscious. So Ayurveda was like, yeah. you gotta become, you gotta, we have to wake up. And that means, you know, yeah, explore the outer feel. You know, this is what the 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 the, the Purusha Arthas are all about, right? The, mm -hmm. the five aims of life, Purush meaning, you know, the soul and Arthas mean for the purpose of. This is all for the purpose of the soul. So we can hopefully at some point merge the soul and the mind so we have awareness of who and what the soul is doing and how it's evolving and that's what i mean we talk about um refining this instrument to perceive that subtle energy in mm -hmm. ways and i think that's what what um what we're really looking for but that means you know beginning to explore the delicate and the most vulnerable parts of ourselves and taking baby steps to let him or her out. Mm. And uh, and that means doing it without an expectation to get anything in, in return, really, right? And I think that's the big thing is we're conditioned as young kids to, well, get stuff. We want mom and dad to love us. We figure out, we have, I have a, a year and a half old granddaughter now, and, and we just laughed. We, my wife and I raised six kids. We laugh so hard at watching this little year and a half old kid manipulate mom and dad like crazy because she's quite brilliant, you know, how all grandkids are, right? But but it's just really funny to watch as a grandparent, because I'm sure I was manipulated by my kids too, you know. But the point is, is that that manipulation of getting what they need from the outside world is hardwired as a young kid. And we have to take action to free ourselves from that need of approval, appreciation of others. And if we don't ever take that action, we just have, we have a world that just feeds us with more stuff to get attached to and addicted to and temporarily satisfied by, but never really deeply content. And I think that's the, the beautiful journey of a relationship, you know, being conscious is like you sort of said it so brilliantly, we have to become conscious within ourselves first. So then we can see the difference, right? Between, you know, doing me and doing you, you know, Am I, when you irk me or irritate me because you're doing something. Um, or you are not giving me, to go back to your child example of six years old being that cutoff point where we neurologically get hardened. 
Right. One of the greatest practices of my life and all humility relationship, you know, I think I'm a really good teacher about these types of things because this hasn't been an easy realm for me in this lifetime. And I'm very grateful for my karma, right? Because it's, 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 it's the quickest path for me to knowing the divine because the yeah. relational realm, it forces us if we want to be in conscious relationship to grow up. And I think that's that's a very strange thing that I don't think our current culture is offering a very good roadmap for. You know, we we're sold a false bill of goods that our partner is meant to be this completion of the unloved aspects of our wounded children that our parents didn't give us. That's that's actually not exactly what the story is about. We use relationships as a means to which we can see the unintegrated parts that we ourselves get to integrate, that we get to become whole through. And I think one of the great lessons in my life has been to really see, oh, wow, I really want this other person to give me the thing I desperately wanted when I was young and didn't get. And that's actually a very childlike orientation. And to be like, wow, and feel the gravity of that and to look back on my past relationships and be like well that's a karmic repetition pattern like all right let's get off that wheel of samsara and i and i i think now i'm finally becoming an adult woman you know like oh wow this is this perfect opportunity for me to be with these parts that feel so little and so scared and like they are going to get abandoned or they are going to leave or you know all of these things that we all feel no matter what our attachment style is, we're all afraid of not being wanted and not being chosen. And if we can actually use that core human longing, one of my teachers used to say, the core human longing is that we wanna be seen and we wanna see, right? And so if I can actually take that as an opportunity to say, you know what, this guy I'm dating may never be able to do that for me. I'm not gonna wait around for him to do it right i can do it and the irony is of course you become a more light-filled being right and and this tejas right this sort of warmth of personality and charisma that has the ability to melt other people's hearts and and bring us close to one another emerges from having done that inside my own heart that brings up a point, you know, there's an old saying, you know, you do the thing you hate and fear to do, you know, do, do, when you're afraid of something, you have to go through it because you have to break through yeah. those fears. And I understand that the pain, the fear is a target, but to what extent is that true? Do we have to, you know, actually go through these fears or is there an easier way? That's such a cool question. I thought I have thought about that a lot. You know, I spent five years studying with this incredible nervous system expert in the field of trauma healing and PTSD. And so one of the things that we learn when we learn how to heal from those deep traumatic states is we need a certain level of safety and we need to feel, we don't need to tap into every great fear, right? And that we need to learn really how to titrate the whole process. And so I think that's important to mention to the reader or to the listeners, like, it doesn't mean you're just gonna go straight for every single fear tomorrow. And what I tell people is, I don't think that we have to generate anything. I mean, look, if you're if you're super scared to go do something and your soul tells you you should go do it, like definitely, but I think life itself when we're in the flow of our 
what I call presence plus love. You you called it Purusha, the soul. When we're connected to the Dharma and the light of our heart, I believe that that consciousness is going to bring us the exact right life experience, whether it be internal, right, or external, that's going to up-level us to the next stage. I, I don't think, I think life is tough enough to go actively seeking fears. Um, but what I do think is is interesting is if we do have something that that feels manageable that we are just scared of sure public speaking, you know, I never want to go to Burning Man. All of my friends have gone to Burning Man and there's a part of me that's like maybe I should go to Burning Man, you know, and so I think it's. <laughs> It's a delicate dance and, and we have to walk wisely and, and, and judiciously and going back to the Bhagavad Gita, I have often felt like, you know, Arjuna on the battlefield of, of, of life, just being like, why is this so hard? You know, like, wh why does it have to be this hard? And I just want to kind of opt out. And of course, the answer that he's given by Krishna is that's not an option. And so simply being willing to participate fully in myself and my life, I think is going to bring the perfect opportunities that I need to, we could say enlighten ourselves. I, I like to think of it as like enheartening ourselves or becoming who we really are. Yeah, I think that, you know, my take on that is that the, this karmic fruit on the karmic tree ripens in sequence. And you just pick the ripe fruit. And if you don't pick them, there's like way too many apples on the tree to eat them all when they ripen. So some are going to fall and you'll get them next year. Yeah. You know, they don't have to, you don't have to pick each fruit that ripens and take action and go through every fear there is. Some yeah. of them you look at and you go, oh yeah, I'll get to that one somewhere down the road. It's okay. Yeah. To, to know that, you know, I've got an issue with my mother or I got an issue with my father or my work person or this or that, you know, you know, I think one of the, one of my, one of the things I try to tell my patients is like, you know, um, when it's easy, just engage, facilitate neural pathways in your brain. And, and by the way, yoga and breathing meditation does that particularly pranayama breathing techniques actually facilitate neural pathways in the brain to let, to give you different roads to travel down. Mm -hmm. um but the you know the idea is to um is to um uh i forget what i was going to say uh, about that but the point is is that that you know the 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 road less traveled is one that we take when we engage in random acts of kindness which means you know when it's easy you know facilitate neural pathways and be nice be grateful, be kind, be giving. There's an old saying by a guy named Henry James, an old author who uh, Mr. Rogers took his favorite words from, which was the most three most important things in life that you could ever learn is to be kind, be kind, and be kind. And I read that, I was like, wow, I dove into that. You know, I was like, what does that really mean? And what it really means is that when you're be kind, one thing is be nice. Be kind at another level, and another level, you're vulnerable, really yeah. vulnerable. And that's, that will explode and expose a lot of your underlying weaknesses by just doing the three be kinds. Mm. When it's easy, when you're at the grocery store and someone has you know a beautiful new dress or a beautiful new hairdo or whatever, there's so many opportunities for us to get out of ourselves and just be kind and to express and lay down facilitated pathways. So we have that roadmap 
of not just being at all coming in, what do I need, what do I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. You start to realize that the joy comes when we are like the sun. It gives light. It doesn't get anything that we know about. It just gives and it fills up all of us by doing that. And I think that's the, that's the, the simple technique is to realize how much we're so dependent on the incoming and how little we really understand how important it is to be, to be you know, kind and giving and caring to each other. And like you said in the very beginning, to your own self. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Well, yes. And I think it brings us to where we started with conscious relationship. When people hear that word, I think automatically we think of beloveds, right? These sort of partners, husband, wife relationship between the sexes. And what I've found with conscious relating is that it, it begins to take on a life of its own that is for everyone. We don't have to have just one special person, although that's certainly wonderful and I, I love that realm. But being able to actually see, as I think it was Rumi said, you know, the beloved is everywhere I turn my face. And I grew up in the American Deep South, or grew up Southern Baptist. I come from a long line of beauty queens and hair to high heaven. You know, like I come from a very interesting lineage of women where our beauty and our sexuality and particularly our relationship to men, and I'm sure some of your listeners can understand this, was how we got our worth and value. And in many cases, if I go not back very far, it's how my lineage of women got their survival. And so that karma that many, especially of us have as women for really seeing that primary relationship, and there's a beautiful biology around that that's also a light side to the shadow, but seeing that as, as, as a primary source of worth is, has been something that I continue to start to parse out and parse apart. And really, when we think about the life force of prana, when we begin to make that formerly repressed energy available and now it can flow, that prana is actually in relationship with everything, with all of life, with nature, with you know, your neighbor that's 80 years old that might need you to come over and pick the weeds. You know, that that's a huge thing that I'm investigating right now. Once we've reached a certain stage of life, we begin to turn our awareness away from our primary relationship. We're all interested in sex when we hit puberty and it kind of continues through our 40s. And I'm not saying people over it. We're going to talk more about this, I hope, on my podcast. Of course, our sexuality is valid at every stage of life and it has a, a beautiful purpose. But what the ancient teachings, as you know, Dr. Dulliard say is that we begin to turn our primary life force and conscious relating, not just to that nuclear family or that primary partner, but to the world at large, to our communities, to our bigger Dharma. And so I think that's just such an important thing to remember when we talk about conscious relationship. I personally have found when I go do volunteer work, when I, I went the other day to a mindful meetup, right? A friend drug me to this and I was like, oh my God, a mindful meetup. This is gonna be the dorkiest thing I've ever done, you know? And I went there and I sat down with this woman and I was in my own little tiny story, right? Inside my head, I was in a bad mood over something very small. And I go and I sit down beside this woman. She was in her probably late fifties, early sixties. And she proceeds to tell me a story 
about how she had just lost her dog, her husband, and her dad, all within that two-year period we all know as the COVID era, era. And here's this woman who's moved to Charlottesville, where I live, from another city to be with her now dying mother. So her whole, talk about a karmic bomb, right? And here's this woman sitting there in her little sweatshirt and her little mom jeans, and, and I'm noticing that my entire heart that had been so constricted and contracted onto my own experience through opening up and just listening to this woman's story, I began to feel the love flow again. And there's something so powerful about getting outside of ourselves that can only really happen through consciously relating to the world outside. Wow, it's so true. You know, like when one heart truly speaks, it opens another. And then when that heart truly speaks, it opens another. And I really believe that one heart at a time, as we're talking about, we change the world. That's the only way to do it. I agree. You know, and, uh, and I think that's such a beautiful story. Um, um, everyone, um, the book is called Healthy, Happy, Sexy, Ayurvedic Wisdom for Modern Women. Uh, we're interviewing Katie Silcox. Um, this is really great. I know I'm going to be on your podcast soon too, so I think we can, maybe can continue this conversation yeah, be a little bit. She's also the founder of the Shakti School um, as well um, for you know empowering women-centered holistic wellness. I think it's really amazing. It's been a really great um, talk, Katie. Um, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Do you have another book? I, I think I heard you have another book coming out too. Is that true? Yeah, I have another book coming out next fall and it's called Glow Worthy, that you're already worthy of stepping into your radiance. So I'm sure I'll, I'll be sending you a copy as well of that. And you know, I have a secret dream. Maybe we can bring you into the Shockey School to talk about whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful. That's really sweet. I, I, I love the title Glow Worthy. Wow, that's so cool because it's so true, you know. Um, and that's what Ayurveda is about, is letting who we are, you know, the truth of us, which is pretty bright like the sun. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for your time um, and your work. And we'll do this again. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.